Sorry. We're seeing the closed captioning test. Thank you for being on the call. Um, Emily and Paul, if you can hear me, it looks like the feed might be coming through. Although, I think it might be the WebEx feed. Either either one, we have a feed. Um, thank you. Test one, two. Test one, test one, two. Test one, two. Testing one, two.
Good morning, everyone. Happy New Year. Welcome to the regular meeting of the Multnomah County Board of Commissioners. Commissioner Myron is excused. Audience members, I want to start by asking you to please silence your electronic devices. I would also like to remind people um, that in addition to the folks in this room, we also have people watching and listening online. So please consider your language and comments and testimony today. Today's meeting is a hybrid board meeting. Some presenters and guests will appear in person and some will appear virtually. For those presenting virtually, please to please make sure to mute your mic when not speaking. And then when you are presenting, make sure to unmute your mic and turn on your camera. For all presenters, please state your name for the record before speaking or responding to questions. Um, because this is the first meeting of a new year, I did want to just share that we have a, always um, at the beginning of the year have a transition of the vice chairs for the um, for the board of commissioners, and it goes by district. So this year, the role of vice chair will be held, or the position of vice chair will be held by Commissioner Beeson. So, um, welcome. No board action is necessary. It's just it's just a, a procedural thing. Yes, but I do need a motion on the consent calendar. So moved. Second. Uh, Commissioner Stegman moves. Commissioner Beeson seconds. Approval of the consent calendar. Commissioner Beeson? Yes. Commissioner Brim Edwards? Yes. Commissioner Stegman? Aye. Chair Vega Peterson? Aye. The consent calendar is approved. Opportunity for public comment on non-agenda matters. This is a time for the board to hear public testimony, not for board deliberation. When it is your turn to speak, I will call your name and unmute you or call you to the presenter's table. I'll set a timer for two minutes when you begin speaking and announce when your time is up, at which point please wrap up your sentence. Uh, Madam Chair, we received uh, 10, uh, 12 verbal testimonies, which were shared with board members and staff. I'll call four people at a time, injured and pissed off, Anne Turner, Rebecca Dempsey, and Deepti Menon. Please come forward. My name's injured and pissed off, and I spoke here the 14th of December, and uh, I was talking about my uh, TV cabinet that had been stolen uh, from my apartment building, and the management had did it, and I reported it to the police, and they refused to watch the video because the apartments owned by the city of Portland. Maybe that's the reason why they're changing the new government, you know. For a blind man to come in here and talk about a service animal being attacked seven times and then being medically mistreated at OHSU, the largest employer in the county, uh, and why the United States Department of Justice hasn't done something is beyond me uh, where a service animal had been attacked seven times in less than six years and injured critically twice where he limped a couple of months each time. Uh, I found a link well, about spinal cord injuries, neurosurgeons, Neurosurgeons are medical doctors who diagnose and treat conditions that affect the nervous systems. These include the brain, spinal cord, and nerves. Finding a neurosurgeon who specializes in spinal cord injury can help save patients' lives, ease their pain, and help them function. Uh, 
when I was banned for life, uh, Paul Adolph Phillips, uh, from the south waterfront, that was the spinal cord treatment that I was supposed to receive, and I didn't. And even when I was up there twice this year, they were explaining to me, I told them that the doctors that the best treatment I had was electrical stimulus treatment to my back, and they thank you. Medicare only pays for two treatments, and that's all I ever got. And thank it's you. been thank 13 years. Today. Thank you. Good morning. Good morning, Chair Vega Peterson and commissioners. My name is Dr. Ann Turner, and I'm a volunteer with Oregon Physicians for Social Responsibility. As a primary care physician, I cared for patients in Multnomah and Washington counties, mostly underserved populations, those most impacted by climate change and by air pollution. I'm speaking today to urge you as Multnomah County's health authority to pass a resolution to eliminate emissions specifically nitrogen oxides from gas appliances. In its recent well, in your recent well-researched report, Multnomah County has called out the harms of indoor air pollution from gas appliances, emphasizing the risk, increased risk of childhood asthma. And I want to call your attention to the resolution recently adopted by the Bay Area Air Quality Management District that will require new appliances emit zero nitrogen oxides. The district has found that emissions from gas appliances, furnaces, and water heaters account for a similar amount of nitrogen oxide pollution as passenger vehicles. And from a longitudinal study in Southern California over 20 years, ending in 2014, of more than 4,000 children, we know that pollution controls on cars that reduce ambient nitrogen oxides decreased childhood asthma rates, and this was in tandem with the lowered levels of ambient nitrogen oxides. It's time for Multnomah County as our health authority to require new appliances to no longer poison the air we breathe. We urge you to protect our health and safety, especially our most vulnerable, from the harms of air pollution from burning fossil fuels in our homes and buildings. Thank you for your hard work, for standing up to big oil, and for the opportunity to comment today. Thank you, good morning. Good morning and Happy New Year, Chair Vega-Peterson and Commissioners Beeson, Brim Edwards, and Stegman. My name is Rebecca Dempsey, and I've lived in the Southwest Burlingame neighborhood for 18 months. My husband and I joined our daughter here, all of us escaping from the Missouri heat. My daughter and I cannot function in heat. We were all pleased to come to a climate that is cooler and a culture that promotes climate justice. To protect this climate, it is crucial that we quit using fossil fuels. One way to do that is to stop using methane, and a first step to that is to require new construction to be all electric. This fits into climate justice also, because all electric homes are less expensive to build and maintain than houses that use methane. Methane is a dangerous explosive. It pollutes our air, and it exacerbates respiratory problems. Let Multnomah County continue its reputation of protecting our environment in ways that care for all of us. Develop healthy air standards in partnership with the people who live here. It is critical that the county take action to begin the transition off of fossil fuels in homes and buildings, and to send a strong signal to manufacturers that the future will be powered by high-efficiency electric appliances. 
Protect the people and the planet, not the polluters. Thank you. Thank you. Good morning. Good morning, Chair Vega Peterson and the Multnomah County Commissioners. Thank you for this opportunity to testify. I'm Deepti Menon, a resident of Northeast 7th Avenue. I work in tech, and I'm an aunt to four incredible children, all under the age of two. In advocating, the clean, in advocating for cleaner air and a sustainable future, I'm compelled to highlight the impact on both ends of the age spectrum. My 75-year-old father, battling asthma, symbolizes the vulnerability of our seniors, while the four young children in my life represent the hopeful future we are striving to build. The Multnomah County Health Department's November 2022 report underscores the dual threat posed by burning methane gas, directly impacting respiratory health for seniors like my father and posing long-term consequences for the children's developing lungs and overall well-being. As we face the increasing frequency of climate-driven events from heat waves to wildfires, it's crucial to regulate polluting gas appliances for the sake of both generations. Seniors with their respiratory challenges and the young children whose health is at a formative stage are equally at risk. Passing policies to transition off fossil fuels isn't just a climate responsibility. It's imperative to the health and safety of our entire community. Decarbonizing our buildings will ensure cleaner air for our seniors and a healthier environment for the kids, laying the foundation for a more sustainable and equitable future. It's been over a year since the number 2022 report. And with the pressing urgency of climate-related challenges, a time for decisive action is now. Thank you for considering the well-being of all residents spanning generations as you deliberate on these vital policies. Thank you. Next, we have Noelle Struder-Spevek, Megan Robinson, Ruth Dallas, and Dr. Theodora Songas. Good morning. You, you can begin. Good morning, Chair Vega Peterson, Commissioners. My name is Noelle Studer Spivak. I'm from the Cully neighborhood in Portland. And um, I haven't prepared comments today, but I just want to really appreciate your leadership on all the climate issues before you this year. Um, in so many ways, you're the real leaders in our region for climate in our state. Um, we held an electrification fair attended by over 800 people this fall. And, um, children put this chain together calling for clean air for kids. Uh, we've got a website if anyone would like to visit it at familiesforclimate.org so you can see harm reduction strategies. So many families can't afford to just swap out their cook stove for a, a non-emissions um, cook stove. So um, we really try to focus on harm reduction strategies and we hope that through all of the county's health clinics and outlets, they can also extend information out to the community about how they can limit their exposure to um, air pollution from cook stoves. Thank you so much. Thank you, good morning. Hi, my name is Meg Robinson. Um, good morning, commissioners. In 2004, Central City Concerns Hooper Detox Program was located in the Hooper Memorial Center building, which was owned by Multnomah County. The county was responsible for the cost of building maintenance, which was around $140,000 a year. In December of that year, Multnomah County decided to declare the building as surplus property and donate it to Central City Concern for use by the Hooper Program, with very few restrictions. 
Central City Concern ran the program on the top floor of the building until 2010, when Multnomah County, the City of Portland, and Central City Concern reached an agreement to open a crisis assessment and treatment center in the building. The city and county each agreed to pay around $2 million for the renovations, and the county also paid an additional million dollars to relo relocate Hooper downstairs. Um, then the county entered into a lease for around $250,000 a year to use the building for Cat the CATSI program. In 2015, Central City Concern was also allowed to split the lot the building was on, sell a portion of it to a real estate developer for a little over a million dollars, and keep the profit. And then in 2019, the Portland police were forced to end their contract with Central City Concern because of the unacceptable conditions and safety standards of the Hooper Sobering Station, which, uh, and then it suddenly closed. To recap, Central City Concern now has no programs in the building the county donated to it. The public paid roughly $5 million to update the building, and after making a million dollars selling a portion of the donated property, Central City Concern collects around a quarter million dollars a year in rent for it. All of the Medicaid reimbursement for providing care to clients in the building goes to the contractor Multnomah County chose to run the CATSI program. This situation is concerning on its own, but is just, it is just one arrangement of many, which I think needs to be investigated before directing more public funding to CCC, especially for property purchases. For the hotel, oh. For the hotel purchase up for consideration today, it's important to highlight that the project really only seems to be financially viable because of the current Medicaid waivers Oregon has. Thank you. Thank you. Good morning. Hi, my name is Ruth Dallas, and I'm here to also speak about gas stoves, gas appliances in the home. Um, my husband and I recently moved into a new home. There was a gas stove in it. So we paid about $4,000 to replace that stove. Um, and I think very many people could not afford to do so. Uh, I recently went for a walk in a new neighborhood right near us. All the new homes have gas stoves. And I'm thinking about all the young families moving into those homes with those gas appliances. And if they have children, their children are probably 25% more at risk of getting cancer. If they have elders in the home with heart disease or lung disease, their, their lungs and their heart are gonna be adversely affected by the noxious, noxious fumes from those stoves. Um, the gas industry, as you know, will tell you just turn on your vent. I'll tell you those vents, they, they don't do a good job and they drive you out of that kitchen. You cannot enjoy cooking when you have that vent on. It's too loud, you can't even have a conversation. That is not the answer. And I think everybody at Multnomah County knows this. It's time to move. It's time to make a decision. Our federal government is frozen, unable to move. But on the local level, we can make huge decisions to help people's health. And by limiting and prohibiting new buildings and new homes from having gas stoves, we can improve the health not only of our children and our elders, but also our outside air so that we can reduce climate change. Thank you very much for listening to me. I really appreciate your work. Thank you. Good morning. Good morning, Chair Vega-Peterson and Commissioners. I'm Dr. Theodora Songus, an environmental health scientist with a career in public health. I'm a member of the Healthy Climate Action Team of Oregon Physicians for Social Responsibility and the Environment Section of the American Public Health Association, where I helped develop its 2022 policy statement on the adverse health effects of gas stoves. Thank you for your commitment to prioritizing the reduction of the cumulative burden of air pollution as part of the Clean Air Resolution adopted in 2022. 
It is the cumulative burden of air pollution contributed by gas appliances indoors and out, combined with the burden of climate disruption that I wish to speak. Air pollution and climate disruption are both public health emergencies, and they interact and exacerbate each other. The World Health Organization has estimated that air pollution is responsible for about 7 million premature deaths from ischemic heart disease, stroke, chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, and lung cancer. Air pollutants from combustion of fossil fuels are major causes of climate disruption. So, dis so reducing air pollution can also address the climate crisis. Homes and buildings cause about one-third of the state's climate pollution and are the second largest source of climate pollution after the transportation sector. This comes from gas burned in furnaces, water heaters, stoves, and dryers. Gas appliances also generate significant amounts of both indoor and outdoor nitrogen oxide pollution with negative effects on public health. Gas appliances in homes and buildings are also one of the largest sources of climate pollution in the county and across the state. Policies to reduce air pollution offer a win-win strategy for both health and climate. I urge you to protect public health from polluting gas appliances while helping decarbonize homes and buildings and lead the state on climate action by passing pro progressive policies. Thank you for this opportunity to comment and for your consideration of our concerns. Thank you. Next we have Lauren Creaney, Sonia Boyce, and Lightning. Do I just start? Yeah, okay. good morning, go ahead. <laughs> Hi, I'm Lauren Creaney. I'm, I'm, calling, I'm speaking about the purchase of uh, the Little Pass property at Southeast 16th and East Burnside for Central City Concern. Um, my main concern is um, if this goes through is making sure that we work together to ensure that the facility and the surrounding area are well managed and safe for both the clients, the staff, and the community members and businesses that are in the area. Um, I think that there's, um, I hope that there are a lot of models that we're looking at to make sure that that happens. A um, few of my th ideas are that I think that there needs to be a clear system for registration for inpatient and outpatient treatment and shelter beds. Um, and ideally in advance um, to make sure it's not chaotic. Thinking about drug-free enforcement zone, um, especially around that area and the surrounding schools. It's very, very close to an elementary school, a daycare, and another um, school in the area. Also, uh, um, camping bans. Uh, if the city has a camping ban around schools, I think it should also think about or enforce that around treatment facilities. Um, and strategy for making sure it doesn't get pushed into the surrounding neighborhood. We know we already have a crisis around 911, police response times, ambulance response times that I think really need to be addressed before the facility is open and operational. Community members need to know that they are going to be safe. Um, and um, just, you know, again, the other things around that, but one of the things I think that we just have to think about is that so this is a really vibrant, sort of like homegrown area where there's lots of mixed use. It's a really important part of the city that we don't want to sacrifice, that we want to think about how to keep vibrant while also welcoming in these much needed resources um, and really prepare for unintended consequences, such as the Burnside Bridge is about to close for five years. Have we been thinking about how that treatment facility is going to be connected with downtown with that major ar arterial um, in the connection point being closed? Thank you. Thank you. Good morning. Good morning. 
I'm here, um, I live in the Cully neighborhood. I lived in city of Portland for Excuse six me, years. Would you mind um, just stating your name for the record? Oh, Sonia Boyce. Oh, <laughs> I'm sorry. Um, yeah, I'm here on, uh, I'm advocating for the people that live in my complex, Heya Telecom. We are being uh, abused, used, uh, threatened, you name it, by management. We've gone through four management people. Uh, our property manager is uh, from California. They don't seem to care about our feelings. Uh, there's over 100 people that live in this complex, along with dogs, cats, and we even, <laughs> I even found out there's a nice little friendly rat that lives on fourth floor. <laughs> uh, yeah, anyway, so I'm here to advocate for them, and you know, something needs to be done because we, as disabled, as myself, I have a disability, I'm 74 years old. There's others in wheelchairs, there's others in electrical uh, mobility chairs. I mean, they're frustrated, we're all frustrated, and we go to management and we get this blank stare. And, oh, well, mind your own business, or, uh, well, we have to follow protocol. Uh-uh, no, I'm not going there. I helped a young man, 43 years old, a year ago this last, a year ago this month, put in an application. They lost their, his application, okay? He put it in a second time. New management took over. They lost his application. He had to put it in a third time. I just found out he spent two days in the hospital and almost died because he has asthma and a hiatal hernia that, and he's living in his car right now. Thank you. Something needs to be done about this property management because no one is doing anything about it. Thank you. you I don't even know who the owners are. So we, I will have you speak with one of my staff in the back okay. room. They'll um, um, talk to you about this to get some more information. All right, thank you. Thank you. That's, and that's all, thank you. <coughs> I'm a little bit on the horse side. I had a bad weekend. <laughs> it's okay. And you can go ahead. Thank you. Good morning. Good morning. My, na my name is Lightning. I represent Lightning Superhumanity X. On the Multnomah County Sheriff's Department briefing on the body-worn camera pilot program, I felt the process was very flawed. I was very disappointed with the briefing. Again, when we're talking about preview of the video on the body-worn cameras, Again, when we're talking about a use of force or a cr critical incident, we do not want the officers reviewing that video first and then writing the report or making a statement. Again, if you allow that to happen, that is cross-contamination of the evidence. As you know, that when there's a use of force or a critical incident, the officers automatically are also under investigation. So why would the sheriffs want to review the video first and then do the reports? Again, absolute disagreement with the sheriffs on that, and I want to have the DA, Michael Smith, weigh in on that. Again, on their meetings that they had with various groups, where were the black churches, the black community members brought in? 
Why were they not brought in from North and Northeast Portland? Some of the most influential people of our communities, I don't think were even brought into these meetings on this, such as uh, Dr. Leroy Haynes Jr. from Albina Ministry Alliance, which I wanted to have some input from him and have some private meetings with him on this. Again, very not satisfied at all on the sheriff's direction on these body-worn cameras. Again, you are the budget. What type of grants are you asking them to apply for? None at this time? None? Thank you. So you want to throw it all on the taxpayers, all on their dollars. Very disappointed, and I'm going to be watching this very close, and I might call to have this discontinued immediately and have the DOJ handle it. Thank you. Next, we have two virtual testimonies. Uh, first one is Kai uh, McMurty. Uh, Kai, I'm going to go ahead and unmute you. Uh, you might have to unmute on your end to speak. Thanks. Can you hear me? Yes, we can hear you. Thank you. Chair Vega Peterson, Multnomah County Commissioners, thank you for providing this opportunity for testimony. My name is Kai McMurtry. I'm a resident of the Montevilla neighborhood of Portland and here as a community member. In November of 2022, Multnomah County released a report titled A Review of the Evidence, Public Health and Gas Stoves on the Destructive Reality of Gas Appliances on Public and Environmental Health. The county's own report puts it blunt and succinct better than I could. So I quote, our review of the most recent scientific literature found conclusively that gas stoves are a health hazard, especially for children with growing lungs. To protect against pollution-driven respiratory problems, we recommend a transition away from combusting appliances in favor of healthy electric alternatives whenever possible, end quote. And yet, more than a year since the report's release, no concrete steps have been taken to decarbonize our buildings and protect public health. I'm here today urging you to affirm the county's intention to address this issue and in partnership with labor, environmental justice, and climate organizations, direct your staff to develop healthy air standards. It's not a question of if we will transition away from gas, only when. And the sooner we begin, the sooner we provide relief to our most vulnerable communities, and the sooner we send a strong signal to the market and manufacturers that our public and environmental health demands high efficiency electric appliances. Thank you. Thank you. Next, we have Benjamin Platt. Benjamin, I'm gonna go ahead and unmute you. You have to unmute on your end, I believe. There you go. Sorry, can you hear me? Yes, we can hear you. Okay, great. Hello, uh, and thank you, Chair Vega-Peterson and Multnomah County Commissioners for hearing our testimonies today. My name is Benjamin Platt. I'm a resident of Southeast Portland and I wanna urge the county to take action to protect public health and our climate. I'm excited by the concrete efforts that are occurring across our country, our region, and our state to decarbonize the communities that we live in. But at the same time, I'm feeling the urgency of the climate crisis through its many effects on my family and the people in our lives. Summer has become a period of dread for my family due to various disabilities that amplify the effects of intense temperatures and poor air quality on our lives, forcing us to shelter in our home more and more frequently to protect our health and well-being amidst increasingly frequent heat waves and wildfires. The gray winter skies in Oregon may get a little old for some, but they are a bomb to my family, signaling the end of many of the most intense environmental events of the year. But right as the outdoor air quality improves with the arrival of the clouds and the rain, 
my family also inevitably hears the natural gas furnace kick on at the same time in the basement of the apartment that we rent, degrading our indoor air quality, representing a threat to leak and explode in the case of a disaster, and overall contributing to the climate pollution that Oregon's buildings cause, which comprises roughly a third of our state's emissions. Our building provides a short-term relief during the worst events of the summer, but the cruel irony is that it is slowly eroding our long-term health and safety by burning polluting natural gas that lowers our air quality and continues to heat our planet's atmosphere. That's why I asked Multnomah County to take action to transition our community off fossil fuels in our homes and buildings by developing healthy air standards in partnership with organized labor, environmental justice, affordable housing, and climate organizations. I'm excited to see our county pass progressive policies that protect public health and safety and lead our state on climate action through concrete justice-oriented actions. Thank you. Thank you. That is all for um, non-agenda public testimony. I will move on to R1. R1, budget modification NOND00824 appropriates 6.25 million to pass through central city concern for the purchase of a property located at East 16th and Burnside. So moved. Second. Commissioner Stegman moves, Commissioner Beeson seconds, approval of R1. So our work at Multnomah County is to make sure that the right resources are there when people need them, especially our most vulnerable. Right now, as we gather together in this room, 83 out of 100 people who are served in a detox or stabilization program exit back to the street. In doing so, they lose their, prog their progress, their stability, and our community continues to lose them and all their potential. This is absolutely unacceptable and we cannot let it continue. The proposed investment I ask you to support today to deliver more alcohol and drug treatment beds in Multnomah County builds on the tremendous and collaborative work that we've accomplished earlier this fall. We invested in the development of a stabilization center, we prioritized transitional and permanent housing for people in recovery. We made urgent, smart decisions to reduce bottlenecks and improve flow through into services. The crisis on our streets, in our neighborhoods, and across every corner of this county demands that we continue to move with the same focus both today and tomorrow. What we consider today investment of $6.25 million for a nearly turnkey facility to provide more than 70 treatment and housing beds to people with complex needs. These are people facing multiple issues, addiction, unmet psychiatric needs, dire medical conditions, people who have few, if any, options to get their needs met and move forward. And we do this in partnership with the state of Oregon, the city of Portland, Central City Concern, and Care Oregon. These partners move with the same goals and urgencies we have to invest in the people of Multnomah County. I wanna recognize the leadership of Governor Kotek, Mayor Wheeler, Andy Mendenhall, and his team at Central City Concern, and the executive leadership team at CARE Oregon for stepping up quickly, moving from opportunity to execution in less than two weeks to turn a viable solution to our current crisis into a reality. And I wanna recognize your leadership as fellow commissioners and advisors and to ask you to make these critical resources available to help us build on our past investments and move with greater urgency towards new ones. I now invite Stacy Bork, my Senior Policy Director, and Mary Rain O'Meara from Central City Concern to join us and to talk through this proposal. Good morning.
Good morning, Madam Chair, Commissioners. My name is Stacy Bork. I use she and her pronouns, um, policy advisor in the Chair's office. Uh, thank you so much for having us today. Uh, I'm going to walk through a presentation in a minute um, as Marina gets it pulled up. And uh, Mary Rain from Central City Concern is, is also here and is available to answer questions as we go through the presentation and then through your comments. Next slide. Thank you. Uh, so under the chair's direction, we're seeking board approval today to appropriate $6.25 million towards the purchase of a property through Central Con City Concern that will be used for alcohol and drug treatment and transitional recovery housing. As the chair, next slide please. As the chair shared in her opening remarks, um, the investment that we, opportunity that we bring you today builds on recent investments and priorities that this board has made over the last six months, uh, including the new stable, funding for a new stabilization center, 120 new units and vouchers for recovery-focused transitional housing, and investment in the design and project planning work for a sobering drop-off center. The use of health and SHS resources both adds to and builds on the plan for these previous commitments. The board prioritized building out behavioral health resources to increase options and increase flow through, and the investment today follows that strategy. Next slide, please. The project that is proposed at this site is adds 70 critically needed uh, high acuity substance use disorder treatment beds and, trans and 30 transitional housing beds. Uh, it's staffed 24 seven and the building already includes a commercial kitchen, laundry and an outdoor area. The priority for services at this site will be for people who are highly acute and have really complex needs. So as the chair mentioned, people with substance use disorders, psychiatric support needs, and medical complications, and many of them with co-occurring disorders that the, experiencing all of those complications at the same time. And the project is proposed to serve 200 people every year. Next slide. So the projected timeline brings people into this site in 10 months and is expected to have their first folks walk through the door uh, in 10 months as they begin ramp up, and then by April of next year, be fully operational and serving 70 people at a time in both treatment and in post-treatment housing as they regain stability and move forward towards more permanent housing options. Next slide. So as the chair mentioned, this proposal, the, the board's consideration today, Multnomah County is not alone. This investment comes alongside the state of Oregon and Governor Kotek, Central City Concern, and the city of Portland, making this a true collaborative strategy. The board's ask again is $6.25 million. Uh, the total purchase price of the property is $15.5 million with an estimated $1.75 million uh, towards tenant improvements, construction costs, and conversion costs for the total investment of this at $17.25 million. And finally, an opportunity to, to 
to articulate the, the funding uh, proposals for where the Multnomah County's investments will come from um, for specific purchase orders um, or program offers, excuse me. Uh, general fund contingency, which uh, is general fund that was set uh, aside for the Multnomah County DA and their PERS costs, their uh, need was smaller than what was initially anticipated. The board took action on this earlier this year. Uh, the health department general fund, um, the $1.8 million that are in the director's office at the health department, uh, and then two investments coming out of the joint office, uh, both supportive housing services funds. Uh, one is safety off the street, shelter for adults, which was a um, strategic shelter capital investment uh, that was set for uh, Cook Plaza, which is a purchase that was made last year uh, through the joint office, and that project is part of the strategic shelter capital work that the joint office is uh, embarking on now, um, and we would like to see these funds used this year in the Cook Plaza project, uh, might not come online this fiscal year. The second uh, is supportive, is again supportive housing services, uh, 2.7 million dollars, um, also for strategic capital, and this this investment is part of the corrective action plan with Metro. Um, I just want to note uh, these funds are all highlighted as one time only, um, and as part of Multnomah County's investment in this project. Uh, through the contracting, we will be setting uh, specific expectations, covenants, and restrictions on use of the building and other financial kind of sidebars for what this uh, will look like as part of this transaction. Next slide. And that is the end of our presentation. All right, thank you. Good morning. Good morning. For the record, my name is Mary Rain O'Mara. I'm the Senior Director of Community Development at Central City Concern. On behalf of Central City Concern, I want to express our deep gratitude for the swift action, partnership, collaboration that we have shared with the county and other leaders, as mentioned by uh, Chair Vega Peterson. I don't think I need to continue to emphasize the urgency. Um, this is well known throughout the Portland metro region that step down from detox, transitional housing and recovery services are a critical link to help people stabilize in their path to health and well-being. And it's missing. We, we need to expand this service within our community. As just one data point specific to Central City Concern, we do operate the Hooper Detox Center. We serve 3,000 people annually, and we are required, based on lack of step-down services, to send 1,000 people annually back onto the streets. So again, I'm, I'm here to express our gratitude um, on the swift action and for your consideration of this funding allocation. Thank you. Thank you. So we have several people signed up for public testimony, so we're gonna move to public testimony and then we'll have time for board questions. Um, so don't go far, um, we'll probably call you back up and board comments as well afterwards. Um, Marina, can we start with the public testimony? Yep. I'll call four people at a time, please come forward. Susan Lindsay, Alex Bove, Richard Johnson, and Laura Erickson. Please come forward. Good morning. I'll take this off so I can 
hear myself a little bit better. Hi, I'm Susan Lindsay, and I'm a longtime Buckman resident and co-chair of the Buckman Community Association. However, I'm not representing the Buckman Community Association at this time. And the reason I'm not is because we didn't know anything about this situation. So I'd kind of like to talk a little bit about trust. This treatment center is definitely needed. There's no question about that. We all know that. And how it's managed will be the critical issue. Whether this is a failure because of mismanagement or this is a model for success for other neighborhoods to host. Buckman hosts a lot of treatment facilities and social services agencies, many of which are in the central city, which is 12th Avenue west to the river. This is not. This is more in the residential area, the area with the small businesses, and of course all, all important uh, elementary school, Buckman Elementary. So we cannot have problems here, and we want to work proactively with Central City Concern, with you, the elected leadership of Multnomah County, with the City of Portland, and with the Governor's Office, who's gotten involved with this with $6 million, to make sure that there is an ongoing, active, good neighbor agreement going on with this uh, new program. We want to know about the program. We want to know what's taking place. We want to be involved. We want to be supportive. And most of all, we want to make sure that this is a success because that's what we're here for. We're, that's what we in Buckman are all about. We're all about lifting people up and we're a welcoming neighborhood. We're an eclectic neighborhood. Um, the fact that we weren't notified is concerning to me. This should be, we, it should be better. We used to be notified about things. And so let's turn that around. Let's come back together post-pandemic and start working together to solve the crises that our city are in. Thank you very much. Thank you. Good morning. Hi, good morning. Uh, my name is Alex Bovey, and uh, thank you for hearing me today. Um, I'm here as a um, uh, uh, community member in the Kearns neighborhood. Um, I want to say, first of all, um, I as well support the intention behind this project. I think it's incredibly important to help people who need treatment, and there's a lot in Portland, and um, it, it's a good thing in its conception, but the city of Portland and Portland planners need a crucial part is to find a place where it will succeed both in itself and in the community and not displace and disrupt and transform a local community because that's not success um, on, and it probably wouldn't benefit anybody in, in the process. Um, I have, first of all, it's astonishing to me how this has been rushed process has been rushed through uh, two weeks to get it ready people in the beds in a few months there's something is fishy here that does not pass the smell test and I think nobody can look me in the eye and tell me that it does it's it's not acceptable did you research the neighborhood this is a residential neighborhood there are families both on the Kern side and the Buckman side I live in a home I'm a homeowner homeowner uh, by the way, the place you're buying is called Lolo Pass. It's a lovely hotel which has a beautiful cafe on the first floor, which I go to literally every day off to do my work from home. 
Um, it's a lovely community place. It contributes to the community. I look at the hotel from my bedroom window directly every day. Uh, the neighborhood is full of families. It's a neighborhood that, uh, there's also an elementary school two blocks away. It's a neighborhood that has been struggling since COVID to recover. Uh, there's a lot of, uh, there's little bits of tents. There's been some drug dealing. We've managed to get that pushed out a little bit. It's, on the, it's coming back. It needs some local businesses. Your decision will decide the fate of our neighborhood. You put this here, you tr radically transform the character, tenor, and living conditions of that neighborhood. And to say, we're going to provide security, the need for security and security in your neighborhood, first of all, I don't think you're equipped to provide that. You can't do it now, Why? what would change? And secondly, I would say, we don't want that. Nobody in the neighborhood wants that. You, you can't, that's not a model is to impose this on a neighborhood, is to find a neighborhood where you can fit in. Um, and so to, to, to say we'll provide the need for security and security, do you want that in your neighborhood? Advanced security measures against tents, camping, etc. cetera. Um, you're changing the character of the neighborhood. Uh, you're driving out local businesses. You'll be driving out families. People will sell their homes. Um, and you'll change the, the character of the neighborhood, and, uh, and nobody in the neighborhood has been informed at all, let alone consulted, which I think is an important part of the research. Good morning. Good morning. I would just like to agree with what this man said. And my name is uh, Rick Johnson. I've uh, lived in the neighborhood for 20 years. I'm talking about the Lolo Pass. Uh, hotel that we just uh, found out about literally from a reporter walking the streets. I mean, this is, I agree, the smell test here is, is pretty stinky. And uh, there's just a, you know, a, a total lack of public input. You know, how is this put together in two weeks? I couldn't even buy a residential house and do my due diligence in two weeks, let alone a 5,000 or 10,000 square foot commercial building. This is ridiculous. And, uh, and you know, how was the auction put together? That supposedly this was auctioned for $15 million. I mean, was there public comment? Were other people, you know, this is, something's wrong here. So, and then as far as the neighborhood is concerned, uh, if you're gonna house people for one to three weeks, that's what I read in the paper, we have no information. Um, uh, next to the city, this central city, if you're going to allow these people out of this hotel, I can tell you there's drug dealers and everything else in this neighborhood. Uh, we are a neighborhood that is right up against the city uh, industrial district, and I could, I've been around addicts. I know addicts, and you know they'll find a way to get drugs. I can guarantee it, even if they're in treatment. And uh, another. A problem is is that this neighborhood is just recovering from St. Francis, which the city and the county did absolutely nothing to, to you know, police or anything. And the neighborhood finally got that soup kitchen that it's slowed down, it's been a big change, and now, you know, we're suffering PTSD from that and now you slam this on us. So we need, if this is gonna happen, we need an enforceable neighborhood agreement that it has to be enforceable. It can't just be some BS and something that the neighborhood can act on legally and, and, and uh, 
you know, take care of this problem if there's problems. And also, we need some benefits for the neighborhood too. There's a school three blocks away or two blocks away, and it's, you know, I don't know, there's no drugs within a thousand feet of a school. This is well within that, that uh, district, district. So thank you, and I, I hope that you guys figure this out before you uh, create a, a big blight in the neighborhoods. Thank you, good morning. Yeah, good morning, my name is Laura Erickson, and I usually can be a very articulate speaker, but I've had less than 24 hours to absorb the impact of the decision to put this facility uh, in the Lolo Pass building. My business is a small birthing center and I am about 200 feet from Lolo Pass. My birthing center is the closest business. A birthing center is a place where families come to feel safe to give birth. Usually my advocacy is around working for uh, safe birth practices, reduction of maternal mortality. Um, we receive um, payments through Care Oregon, and so seeing them as a big part of this was um, kind of stunning. Um, as we have been making a lot of positive impact towards um, outcomes for moms and babies for 20 years in this site, our taglines have been a quiet neighborhood birth center, the sweet spot in the heart of Portland to greet your baby. Um, Chair Vega Peterson, you talked about the most vulnerable population, and I want to tell you that the population I serve is also a very vulnerable population. It is very common, any of you who live in Buckman, to see us walking around with laboring people, enjoying the flowers that our neighbors grow. And it's gonna be a really visible difference and a change. It's not gonna feel safe for people to come to our birthing center. Because I haven't had much time to prepare for this, I don't have my PowerPoint all put together, just learned about this. I don't even know what I'm asking for, but possibly since all this money is being talk tossed around, uh, relocation funds for my birthing center might be a reasonable thing to ask for because this is not compatible with new life. You also said that you know addiction. I've had addiction in my family, lost a close family friend to fentanyl. I'm not disagreeing that this is a major issue. And it isn't even a case of not in my backyard. This doesn't seem to have been thought through, discussed, planned, I don't know. Just for me, it came out of nowhere. And it doesn't feel fake. Uh, safe. I very much mistrust the players. And that's my beep. Thank but you. Not happy. Next we have Joel Schomburg, Meg Robinson and Lightning.
Good morning. Uh, hello, my name is Meg Robinson. I appreciate both the sentiment and the sense of urgency behind this pro proposal. I agree that the state of homelessness and behavioral health in our area is a humanitarian crisis. One important thing to note is that Central City Concern is one of the largest evictors of low-income people in our area. Additionally, although ongoing funding was not discussed at length in the presentation, this project really only seems to be financially viable because of several of Oregon's current Medicaid waivers. For anyone who isn't aware, 1115 waivers are essentially special authority the federal government gives to Medicaid programs, which allows individual states to use Medicaid funds in a way that they usually wouldn't be allowed to. They're granted on a trial basis, and technically they can be terminated if they don't end up improving outcomes or maintaining cost neutrality. Even though it seems like there's a general assumption that waivers always get renewed, and in the past that has been true, for several reasons, I believe it would be irresponsible to allocate funding without considering that possibility. Despite the capital investments being made in our area, the behavioral health, health system cannot be too big to fail. There are federal funds involved in the proposal, which makes it even more important to know whether or not you are protecting the investment you're making, and ultimately, the vulnerable population you are making it on behalf of. Fortunately, federal funds come with federal oversight, and I sincerely hope that you have made provisions. Thank you. Good morning. Good morning. Uh, my name is Joel Schomburg. I'm a homeowner, homeowner owner <laughs> in the neighborhood very close to this building. Um, I'd like to say I object to this idea. It's while the services that it would provide are very important for our city and our vulnerable residents, and it's, I'm happy that the city wants to do something about it, it's very clear that this um, has not been thoroughly thought out or planned out to, to have happened in two weeks. All our neighborhood neighbors and residents in the area are finding out about it just yesterday and rushing here to share their opinion. It shows that it, it is not welcome in this area. Um, we talk a lot about serving vulnerable residents, which is important, but what about the residents who have put their life savings and all their hard work into their homes, their businesses and schools that are gonna be adversely affected by the, what this building does? Um, I have no faith and trust in Central City concern to run this facility safely and appropriately, it's been shown that they have many problems with the way they handle things. Um, I urge the city to go back and research this and get input from neighbors and people and businesses that live around this area and get their feelings on what's gonna happen before pushing things through. Thank you. Yes, my name is Lightning. I represent Lightning Superhumanity X. No community input. What a surprise with Multnomah County. Now, my understanding, I heard somebody say this property was auctioned. First, the political leaders depress the market through their failed policies, and then they do their land banking to try to buy these properties up pennies on the dollar. What a scheme. What a class action suit waiting to happen on every one of you. 
who participate in taking auction properties out of the marketplace. Another issue I have is with Central City Concern. They're a monopoly. Why do they always get this money? We have so many other groups out there that are wanting to step up and trying to do things and get out there and have a break. They don't get this kind of money. They don't get this money from Multnomah County. Why is that? Why is that? That's a question that I would like to have the answer some sometime. Now, as far as on this project and the neighbors are all against this, talk to Commissioner Myron. She has a great location, the Crown Plaza, wonderful location, won't be disturbing the neighborhoods. We can roll all that money into that property, roll all that money into that project, and put it together. It'll be one of the best projects ever done. We'll help all these people that need these services. To the whole neighborhoods, contact Commissioner Myron and let her explain what that project is all about. It will not be in your neighborhood. It will not disturb surrounding neighborhoods. It will actually help the communities. The Crown Plaza is a project well thought out, well located to handle these type of services and the clientele that will be utilizing these services in a respectful, humane way. You don't want to have these type of properties set up where you have neighborhoods already against the projects. It's not good for anybody. So why did you not have that kind of input from these community members first? Why not? We have other options. We have other locations. Talk to Commissioner Myron. She respects their opinions. She wants to hear from them. She wants to talk to them. And there are other options. Again, I'm very dissatisfied on this. I'd like this to have a pause put on this for 30 days before the final decision. And again, I want to hear from Commissioner Myron on the Crown Plaza, another option that I think these people that have showed up today would be very satisfied with. Thank you. Thank you. And that's all the public testimony. All right, thank you. We will now go to the board for questions and comments, and I'll ask um, you to come back up in case there are any questions or comments from the board. We'll start with uh, Commissioner Beeson. Thank you, Chair. Thank you both for being here. Uh, I have uh, just a few questions. So um, the need for this type of facility in in where do we find our, our, the plans that say we need some kind of facility like that? I, you, you said there's been a clear need. I'm just, I'm just wondering where that need's identified at. Yeah, absolutely. I, this is tied to our continuum of services for people who are experiencing homelessness, addictions, mental health um, conditions throughout our community. Currently, we do not have the sufficient number of beds for people that are entering detox um, to transition out of. We have a continuum that often is moving people right from detox um, 
into permanent housing, um, and that is not always the best fit for some individuals. They need that transitional level of care that provides medical attention, 24-7 wraparound services, in order to then stabilize and continue on into permanent housing. So this provides that gap in our continuum of services um, that assist people with their uh, journey out of homelessness. Thank you. Uh, can you, I'll I will try to share all of my questions all at once and you can take them in however you'd like. Um, can you talk about um, how and why this process needed to move relatively quickly to acquire the site? Um, can you chat about what uh, your plans are between now and the opening when you think about um, community engagement? I saw you nodding your head uh, um, yeah. around uh, plenty of that. And then um, can you talk about the why we wouldn't build what does this um, existing building offer that we would that um, is makes it a great opportunity versus building something um, from scratch and that sort of the timing of that? Sure, absolutely. And and for the record, my name is Mary Reno Mayor. I, I neglected to mention that um, in my last statement. So in terms of the process, this is an unusual transaction. And just to emphasize, Central City Concern has been building supportive services and housing and clinical facilities in Portland and the metro region for over 40 years. Our typical process is one that is longer. We are committed to community engagement. This transaction being an auction required us to move quickly. And we are under a confidentiality agreement with the seller. So we are bound to certain restrictions in this process where we could not engage in a more typical community engagement exercise. However, we are committed to once the sale is final, immediately reaching out to the neighborhood association, other community stakeholders, and engaging with those conversations. In terms of why this facility, this was built in 2021. It is new construction. It is a facility that enables us to open 70 supportive treatment beds and step down transitional housing within a close central location that has access to transit and other amenities. It has a commercial kitchen, which is crucial for this type of operation. And it presented an opportunity to move swiftly um, on a real estate asset that we are able to acquire below market value due to the nature of the transaction. And if I forgot one question, can you please remind me because there were several in there. I was hoping you- Commissioner Beeson. <laughs> with that question. No, I don't, I, you know, um, uh, I tell this story a lot, but uh, as a kid, my mom was a social worker at a behavioral health residential site uh, located in a neighborhood. It was a historic building, it was beautiful and gorgeous, and it was full of uh, psychiatric patients um, uh, who I ended up adoring. The neighborhood um, gentrified, and the new residents were frightened, even though there had never been an issue. Uh, and I recognize that um, uh, it can be scary, uh, and, and potentially not feeling like you uh, got to be a part of the decision. Um, unfortunately, uh, it didn't make it. It got turned into condos. 
um, in part because of uh, neighborhood revolt. So I'm very excited um, and enthused to see the level of engagement you all do over the next uh, 10 months um, to ensure that this becomes an important asset uh, for our community and for the neighborhood as well. So thank you. Thank you. Um, Commissioner from Edwards. Thank you. Um, I'm going to just start with the the, the need. Um, the recent OHSU study that found there's a 49% gap between substance use disorder services um, that Oregonians need and what we have. Uh, to me, just highlights why we need to continue to move um, projects forward and, and support them so that we can close that gap. Um, in addition, the last domicile unknown report with 315 individuals who died in 2022 without a home, 123 of those deaths uh, were associated with drugs or alcohol toxicity. Um, so I'm supportive of adding critically needed treatment beds. Um, and I do expect, and I hope um, as we head into the budget process to get an overall plan so we can see sort of the how we're building out and closing that gap between what the need is and also um, and what the services are and how we're building out with it, whether it's sobering, detox, and treatment. Um, and I view this as uh, one potential um, piece to help fill that, that gap. I do have a, um, some questions about um, some real estate pieces and also the community engagement. And I'm going to start with the community engagement side of things. Um, I looked at, as you looked at the timeline for building out um, and, and opening on a pretty accelerated timeline. And um, given this is a central city concern project, I'm interested in knowing whether I didn't see on the, the timeline a um, community engagement or time to build sort of agreements with the neighborhood. And I'm wondering if that's something that central city concern will commit to um, prior to opening. Yes, absolutely. After. Again, um, Mary Reen O'Mara for the record. Um, we will be closing no later than February 15th if all funding is approved and allocated for the acquisition. Uh, we will not anticipate um, serving our first patient in the building until the fall of 2024. During that time, we will absolutely commit to community engagement. Um, we have a long history and experience with uh, neighborhood agreements. Our Blackburn Center, for example, that opened several years ago in East Portland. We have um, a very successful community agreement with that neighborhood association, and um, we uh, do really pride ourselves on being a enga an engaged developer and a service provider and operator. So we bring all of those functionalities to any of our buildings so that you do have a point of contact as a neighborhood and community member from the planning stage through operations. So um, given that, and again, this is a central city concern project, um, but if I look at the total dollars, um, a third of it, um, of the capital will be from the county. And since I joined the commission, one of the things that I want to highlight is that um, I want the county, knowing that we're going to need to increase the amount of services that are um, dispersed across the city in order to meet um, the real needs, um, pressing needs that we have, um, that there are going to be more um, facilities cited um, and a whole range of different facilities. And um, the 
priority of having the county be a good neighbor um, because that makes for sustainable operations. And um, the consideration, and I, I would only offer that I think um, if you talk to neighbors um, near the Blackburn Center, they um, have actually struggled with some of the um, activity that's happening outside of the facility and that um, that could be a learning opportunity about um, less what might be done differently um, at sites going forward so that um, the neighbors um, know that all the things that um, the concerns that they raise um, they have a point of contact there's it's actionable um, and that all happens before operations start um, so that would that would be my piece on community engagement um, and then um, I have some just technical questions about the the actual um, deal um, and I don't know who's most appropriate whether this is um, sort of illegal or uh, Department of Community Assets but the six million dollars that the county would be putting in does that mean we have an ownership a third ownership interest in the building or we're just making a donation and then the property um, is owned by Central City Concern that is the intention is that it's a pass-through um, like I mentioned at the end of my uh, remarks and the presentation is that um, through the contracting process we will be setting forth use covenants on ensuring that the building uh, the investment is is retained for that use so pass-through is like we're making a contribution we don't have an ownership interest and the state won't either I mean it will all be owned no, by I believe all the deals concern. are structured the same way so from a legal standpoint um, if the property is no longer used for the what, the intended purpose would that re, would we get our in, our contribution back um, I would be concerned if we um, made a I mean it's it's a lot of money uh, we made a contribution and that ultimately for a variety of reasons um, the facility wasn't used for its intended purpose that we would have made a very significant investment and then not have the ability to claw it back or get our money refunded yes we haven't started those negotiations uh, commissioner um, but they're noted and I know that uh, the chair and uh, legal have have the same desires and same concerns and so the the legal contract will be structured in a way that is really specific around the use and um, what future use of the building can look like and what the county's position is during that um, just to really drill down so that the if the use changed we'd have the ability to I mean our money would refunded I'm, I'm actually not hearing that or that that's our negotiating intent but we don't know that Central City has committed to that I would I would say that we haven't actually started the conversations about that piece of the contract this is really that kicks this this action by the board would kick off that process to really do, drill into that but my intention and I've um, had this conversation with COO Cruz as well is to make sure that we do have these both sideboards um, and um, covenants around the the use and what would happen were um, the intended use of this change um, that 
and, and I can't tell you if it's going to be we would get the money back or we would then retain ownership of the building. Um, previous contracts, I think, from the county have, have looked a little bit differently. I hear you're saying you want to see something that it's either getting the money back or, or us retaining some ownership of the building, and, and that will be part of the negotiation. Yeah, I mean, absolutely one or the other. I mean, I just yeah. think that's our fiduciary yeah. responsibility, and it's a large capital investment, um, and we have a long partnership with Central City Concern, which we really value, um, and we need these services. I just want to make sure that we're protecting uh, from, as the, uh, with our fiduciary responsibility um, to the county and our, uh, tax dollars that we, um, if it wasn't used as, as intended, and I'm very supportive of its intended use, that we would get that back and that not just be a negotiating um, something that we want to get out, but that we actually achieve in our discussions with Central City Concern. Thank you. Uh, here's your segment. Thank you, Chair. Uh, thank you, Stacey and Mary, for being here today. Uh, let me just state the obvious. We know that Oregon has one of the highest uh, substance use disorder rates in the country. We also know that we have one of the lowest uh, resources for services. So I understand and I want to acknowledge um, the neighborhoods that have come forth and validate what they're saying and I can understand their concerns. But I also want people to know that we will do everything in our power to ensure the integrity of those neighborhoods and we will work very closely with Central City Concern and I have confidence uh, in our legal department and in the chair's office to make sure uh, that there are good neighborhood agreements. And I also think uh, for those of us who have um, been around treatment centers or have loved ones, uh, a residential treatment site is a lot different. I mean, uh, and, and I'm, is this, is this a secure residential treatment site or do we know, are we planning on that? This, this would not be a secure facility. Okay. It will have 24 seven staffing. Okay. Yes. Okay. So, um, I mean, treatment centers uh, are, are a little bit different. I mean, it, it's not like you have people uh, constantly coming and going because people are actually living there. Uh, the other thing that I'm really proud of, again, we've had our community say we need our governments to work collaboratively with our service providers. And you've got Multnomah County, you've got the state of Oregon, and the city of Portland. Like, we are doing it. So we have listened, and the fact that we have all of these entities that are saying this is one of our highest needs, we have got to do something about it, and the fact that we're doing it is, is really uh, amazing, and I'm really excited uh, that this opportunity has presented itself. And I think going back to the issue of Many people did not know. Uh, I think many of us board members did not know. And just the nature of a real estate transaction uh, where uh, a property is put on auction, uh, there is some confidentiality issues that are involved as to why uh, we couldn't be talking about this in a more public way. Um, I did want to go back. So what year did you say the building was built, Mary? Uh, Mary Reno Mara for the record, 2021 constructed. Okay, so it, it is, uh, it's a relatively new building, and so I'm assuming that, that you all have done your due diligence on the, the, the physical building itself? 
We have, we have an extensive property conditions assessment that points to a very high construction quality of the building. Um, I, I will clarify though, we are still in a due diligence period. Um, and so we will continue to do some level of additional inspection, um, but everything that we've received to date has indicated a very high construction quality and we have um, information about the general contractor who is a well-known respected general contractor um, so everything, again, is pointing to high construction quality in the building. Great. And I would assume, too, that if there was any, you know, challenges with the building, then we would have some type of escape clause. Absolutely, yes. We okay. are still in the contingencies period. Okay, excellent. Well, I am really excited. I know that when we toured uh, Hooper uh, Detox that, that, you know, exactly what has already been said uh, where you see 3,000 people annually and 1,000 people go back to the state or back to the streets. We have got to change that. And this is a great down payment on changing that. So thank you so much for being here today. Yeah, I want to thank both of you for the, for the presentation and for, um, you know, I, I also want to, again, thank Central City Concern, CARE Oregon, the state of Oregon, the city of Portland for coming together to make this happen. It did happen fairly quickly, I understand that. I wanted to share a story um, when, when I was a commissioner, I was a relatively new commissioner. Um, I attended a meeting about a shelter that was going to be opening up in the Foster Powell neighborhood. There were 300 people there from the neighbor who were, who were very angry about this going there. It was, um, there was actually like standing room only, there was like people even outside who wanted to come and testify. There was a lot of anger, there was a lot of anxiety, there was a lot of fear about what this would do to an up and coming neighborhood, a neighborhood that was on a cusp of changing, that was getting new businesses coming in, that people really um, loved their neighborhood and saw the potential of the neighborhood. Um, there was, as the commissioner for that district, I um, realized we had to, that this project was going to go forward because it was very much needed, very similar to this one, but there had to be a better process to engage the community. And so for the next 10 months before that facility opened, um, my office and I worked with the Joint Office of Homeless Services with the provider, which was Transition Projects, to engage with business owners, with communities, with schools in that neighborhood, and had a process about what the facility would be like, how it would operate, and then and establish a good neighbor agreement for that. That was a really successful model. We have had the Laurelwood Shelter that has been open for the past, I think, five, six years now. Um, it is, is just an integrated part of the neighborhood. In fact, um, a school that's right near there that was very much opposed to it um, has sent students to actually, you know, volunteer to cook meals in there. That, that is a great example of what community involvement should look like and can look like, and that's what I wanna have as a model for this process as we move forward with this. So I wanted to share that because I know there is a lot of anxiety about what happens. Um, it is a process that we work for, and it's one that um, is going to involve the community. Um, I also wanted to share that um, both our facilities department and our joint office teams have had opportunities to walk through that. Um, it was a property they had looked at earlier, a few months earlier, just as a potential for a shelter. It, it, it isn't set up that way. It is set up very well for this type of purpose. Um, I appreciate the questions from the board about the need for this and the recognition that we do have a huge need for that. In addition to the OHSU report that Commissioner Brim Edwards um, referenced, um, even the, the very recent Portland Central City Task Force um, lifted up the fact that we, have, we need in this area 200 more, at least 200 more 
um, recovery beds, residential treatment beds. And this is, a, this is an incredible start in, in trying to reach that goal. So again, I appreciate the sponsorship. I'm committed to making sure we're working with community. Um, I know Central City Concern is as well. Um, but I think this is an opportunity that we have for both partnership and investment for critically needed services that are going to serve our community and serve the people who need it well um, in a way that's going to make the difference that we need to be building here in Multnomah County. Um, with that, um, public comment period is over. I, everyone had a chance to, to speak who signed up. Um, we are now at the point of the meeting where we are going to be taking a uh, board vote. So Marina, can we have a roll call vote? Commissioner Beeson? Yes. Commissioner Brim Edwards? Yes. Commissioner Stegman? Aye. Chair Vega Peterson? Aye. The budget modification is approved. Oh! R2. You already decided you oh, got R2, second reading of ordinance amending Multnomah County's zone map and zoning code to incorporate amendments to the City of Portland zoning map and planning and code zoning code implementing the city's floodplain resilience plan. May I have a motion? So moved. Second. Commissioner Stegman moves. Commissioner Bryn Edwards seconds approval of R2. Good morning. Good morning, Madam Chair. Good morning, Commissioners, and Happy New Year. Uh, I'm Adam Barber. I'm the Deputy Land Use Planning Director with the County's Land Use Planning Program. And I'm joined here uh, behind me with uh, Jeff Cottle, uh, City of Portland Bureau of Planning and Sustainability. And uh, also Jessica Mooring uh, with City of Portland, uh, Bureau of Planning and Sustainability with City of Portland. Uh, we're here, uh, you might recognize uh, this project and the, and the project team. We were here two weeks ago. And this is a second reading on the same project. Uh, it's related to adopting, implementing uh, documents related to the City of Portland's floodplain resiliency project. And the goal of this project is to help reduce flooding within the city's jurisdiction, also protect those same areas for uh, endangered and threatened fish, and help advance city and county policies related to climate resilience, um, particularly related to flooding, uh, high heat events, and also drought. Uh, these, um, these amendments are required to be adopted by the county pursuant to our planning service IGA that we have with the city of Portland. And uh, Jeff, two weeks ago at the first reading, walked through the details of that proposal. Um, we don't have any additional information to present today. Uh, we have not been contacted with any questions since the first reading, but we, we are available to answer any questions the board might have uh, before you take a vote. Thank you. Did we have any um, public testimony for this item? No, Madam Chair. Okay, thank you. Um, we'll go to the board for any questions or comments. Commissioner Brim Edwards. Yeah, uh, well, sorry, I'm just. Yep, uh, Commissioner Stegman. Thank you, Chair. Thank you, Adam. No questions. Uh, Commissioner Beeson. No questions. All right, Commissioner Brim Edwards. That was a back to me um, <laughs> really quickly. Um, so I just, I want to say that I'm su supportive of this um, and Johnson Creek does uh, run through the, uh, the floodplain through, uh, meanders through District 3 and it's home to a number of threatened and native fish and wildlife um, species. And I just wanna thank um, the county for its continued stewardship and working with um, the local community, environmental associations um, on uh, our stewardship of the Johnson Creek ecosystem and the 
the, the recognition of the work that the community, community and organizations have done to really restore um, and support the fish and wildlife habitat there. So um, I'm very supportive, but just want to make that comment since it's in my district. Thank you, Commissioner Berman Edwards. Um, I do not have any um, questions. Adam, thank you for your work, your team's work, and the City of Portland's work on this. Uh, can we have a roll call vote? Commissioner Beeson? Yes. Commissioner Broom Edwards? Yes. Commissioner Stegman? Aye. Chair Vega Peterson? Aye. The ordinance is adopted. Thank you. R3, budget modification MCSO 00324, appropriating $758,661 of Bureau of Justice Assistance Supported Recovery Program Grant. So moved. Uh, Commissioner Segman moves. Commissioner Brim Edward seconds approval of R3. Good morning. Welcome. Who's kicking us off today? I am, Chair. Uh, good morning, and thank you for the opportunity to be here today. Uh, I am Chief Deputy Steve Reardon, responsible for the corrections facilities. And joining me is Facilities Services Director Stephanie LaCruva and Multnomah County Corrections Health Operations Manager Rachel Lee. We are here today in partnership to request approval of appropriating $758,661 within MCSO's budget modification, MCSO-003-24, specific to the awarded BGA grant funding for supported substance use recovery programs. Leveraging an individual's incarceration to offer education, coping skills, and transition services for recovery is an important moment where we look to share hope for someone's future that is free of drug use. You heard about this program briefly in 2022 when we presented our notice of intent for this grant. Since that time, BGA has updated the award name to replace the term abuse with use. The funding award is now a comprehensive opioid stimulant and substance use site-based program. For more information and to walk through the details, I'll turn the conversation over to Stephanie and Rachel. Good morning. You can hear me. No, yeah, go ahead. And turn okay, you, sorry. Good morning, um, Stephanie LaCaruba. Thank you for having me here. MCSO applied for and was awarded a grant to expand and continue the 2019 to 2022 grant funded medication supported recovery program, uh, otherwise known as MSR program. The MSR program provided Suboxone to eligible adults in custody with a known release date with the goal of preventing overdose deaths. The MSR program is also connected many program participants with peer support speci specialists that work for MHAAO and medication providers in the community. This expanded program will be renamed Supported Recovery Program as more than just medication will be provided as part of the expanded services. MCSO corrections counselors will provide education to program participants while in jail, and MCSO will bring peer support specialists into the jail to provide an overview of their services. Counselors and transition services program staff that work for Corrections Health will work together to assist participants with release planning. Our project manager, Laura Malstrom, and Corrections Health's program supervisor, Linda Ortiz, have already started on this work um, on expanding our program. And Laura Maelstrom is here in case there are any uh, detailed questions as she's one of the subject matter experts. For MCSO, the grant funds will be used as uh, follows. We'll have a, a 1.0 FTE dedicated project manager um, who will be assigned to continue operations and work on those program expansions and a temporary 
0.15 FTE research scientists will continue to assist by collecting and analyzing program data to provide a report rega regarding program metrics and goals. And I'll turn it over now to Rachel um, to, for the corrections health pieces. Thank you. For the record, I'm Rachel Lee, Senior Operations Manager for Corrections Health. Um, Corrections Health is dedicated to providing quality care to the adult, adults and youth in custody in Multnomah County, and that includes providing medically appropriate treatment for those with substance use disorder. This partnership with MCSO will allow us to continue expanding our medicated supported recovery program, allowing access to life-saving treatment to those in custody, many of whom will release as members of our community. Currently, Corrections Health is able to provide Suboxone medication to adults in custody that are booked into custody with an active prescription and for those with confirmed release dates about a month prior to release. The additional funding provided by this grant will allow us to expand that criteria to AICs transferring to other correctional facilities that have MSR programs and eventually with the goal of anyone who requests MSR while in custody, regardless of a projected or anticipated release date. In July of this year, there were 152 total referrals to our transition team who facilitate starting clients on MSR in custody and planning for their release. 25 of those were for substance use disorder treatment. In November of this year, there were 278 total referrals and 103 of those were requests for a substance use disorder treatment, which just um, articulates the growing need. Thank you for your time. And I will hand it back to Chief Reardon. Uh, thank you, Rachel and Stephanie. I appreciate all the time and coordination it took to organize and plan for this funding, and thank you for being here today and to Laura. MCSO will continue to look for opportunities to offer meaningful programs to our adults in custody. It is through program partnerships and funding like BGA grants that we are able to support people changing their lives. We look forward to bringing you exciting information about this program in the future. With that, I respectfully request that the board approve MCSO's budget modification, MCSO-003-24, allocating $758,661 to the supported recovery team. Thank you, and we're happy to answer any questions. Thank you so much. Um, did we have any public testimony on this item? Yes, Madam Chair, Lightning. Yes, my name is Lightning. I represent Lightning Super Humanity X. I do approve of this grant 100%. Again, when we're talking about the Bureau of Justice Assistance, as I've stated to the commissioners and the chair numerous times, there should be a notice of intent also for the body-worn cameras, which will fit into this item. When we're talking about being able to monitor the situation and being more effective within the jails, why are we not talking about also correction officers with body-worn cameras and also you making sure a notice of intent is with the Bureau of Justice Assistance, which they fund the cameras, and they are very intensive, comprehensive on the details of the policy per their money per their grant money. That is why I want these grants in place, because they overlook these policies like you could never do, because they have the researchers behind them, the money behind them, and they take this very serious. So again, 
I'm at 100% agreement on this. As you know, we've been seeing in the news articles of people dying in our jails, and this will go in that direction. I wanna make sure that we have access to the reports by the research scientists. I wanna be able to review those myself as the public. I wanna make it very clear on these grants that we should have access to that. I wanna have access to any and all reports pertaining to these federal grants. That's very important to me on understanding the terms, the conditions, and everything in these grant agreements that will be followed by, to the T. And that's what I wanna make sure, is that I have access to those research, the data, where I can go over that and make sure improvements are being made. But again, I approve of this 100%, and I'm behind this 100%, and uh, I'm sure it will go well and improve the conditions for the people within our jails, and to make sure that we do not have drug overdoses inside of our jails under the watch of MCSO. That should not be happening, and that's why I want those cameras on. I wanna have that video and audio to analyze I want to be able to transfer that to the DOJ, transfer that to the universities, transfer that to the think tanks, transfer that to the community oversight committees. I want that video. I want that audio. I want to have control of the video and audio and what they're doing in these jails. Again, control of the video and audio. They can have the ownership. I want the control of it. Thank you. Thank you. All right, we'll now go to the board for any questions or comments. We'll start with Commissioner Stegman. Thank you, Chair. Thank you for being here. I just had a question. So is, this is an expansion of the program, and I'm just wondering how many more people will we, will we be able to serve because of the expansion? Hi. I'm Laura Malstrom, I'm the um, Supported Recovery Project Manager. Um, I don't know that we have a specific number. I think right now we're just looking for any increase in numbers, which we've already seen. Um, I know in the peer support referrals in the previous three months from um, July to September before we started the grant, there were 31 referrals to peer support specialists with our program. And then in the last three months, October to December, there were 60. So we've already increased that number and we just hope to see more as, the, that's even before the peers have come into the jail, that's just increased um, kind of numbers within the program and as well as just visibility, knowing who needs the assistance so that we can make those referrals appropriately. So we're just hoping to kind of continue to see those numbers increase but I don't know that we have a specific target because we, we just don't know yet. Okay, great. Well, thank you. I mean, we know that uh, medication, medicated support recovery is a proven technique to save lives and to help people on, on their path to recovery. So I'm really excited that you have a continuation and even expansion of this money. It's much needed. And I know, uh, Rachel, I'm going to be spending some time uh, with your office later this afternoon, so I'm really looking forward to that. So thank you all for being here. Thank you, Commissioner Beeson. No questions, thanks for your work. Thank you, Commissioner Grim Edwards. All right, I don't have any questions either. I'm so glad that we have this grant, that we're gonna be moving this work forward and it's building on the really in incredible work that you've done. I just wanna thank all of you for your work and your partnership on making this type of um, 
uh, access to medical care possible for folks who are who are in our custody. So thank you so much. Uh, Marina, can we have a roll call vote? Commissioner Beeson? Yes. Commissioner Brim Edwards? Yes. Commissioner Stegman? Aye. Chair Vega Peterson? Aye. The budget modification is approved. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. R4, proclaiming January 13th, 2024 as Korean American Day in Multnomah County, Oregon. So moved. Second. Commissioner Stegman moves. Commissioner uh, Brim Edwards seconds. Approval of R4. Um, so I'm so pleased today to, for the opportunity to reflect on the immeasurable contributions for the uh, Korean and Korean American community here in Multnomah County. Um, the contributions and the impact that you have made on the health, wellness, arts, happiness, and stomachs of our residents for more than a century. And I think all of us have been enjoying the scents that have been wafting through the room for the past um, several minutes. Um, I appreciate just so many people showing up today for this, and I'm really happy to turn this over to Commissioner Stegman to really lead us through today's proclamation and celebration. <laughs> Thank you, Chair. Oh my gosh, it is so amazing to see all of your beautiful faces. Um, so welcome to the Korean community and to everyone. Um, try not to get emotional of it. Um, so good morning and welcome as we celebrate Korean American Day. I am so thrilled to be introducing today's proclamation. While Korean American Day isn't until Saturday, January 13th, I wanted to ensure that we recognized it during a board meeting, which is why we are celebrating it early. As many of you may know, I was abandoned as a baby in Seoul, South Korea, and then was adopted at the age of six months old by my American family. And while I have eternal love and gratitude for my family here, there is still a part of me that longs to know what it means to be Korean. As part of the first wave of Korean adoptees in the 1960s, it was very unusual to see a biracial family. I was taught to assimilate, to blend in, to be absorbed into the dominant culture. In short, to be like everyone else. But the problem was, I wasn't like everyone else. And at the time, being different was not something that I took pride in. But times have changed. And in the 1990s, Korean culture began to gain global popularity and became a cultural phenomenon with K-pop, K-dramas, fashion, movies, food, and commerce. Finally, it is officially cool to be Korean. <laughs> when I started my public service career, I never imagined the places I would go and the people that I would meet that have had such a profound impact on my life. Many of those people are in the room today or are watching online, and some I have yet to meet. But one person in particular has played an immense role in the Korean community, and that person is Mr. Greg Caldwell. Greg has served as the Honorary Consul for the Republic of Korea in Portland for the last 10 years. 
I first met Craig when I was a Gresham City Councilor, and I was the liaison to the Gresham Sokcho Sister City Association. Greg was everywhere all of the time, and I'm fairly confident that he literally knows every single Korean within a 100-mile radius, maybe 200 miles. He taught me so much about my culture, and through his monthly Korean events newsletter, I attended many cultural events and got to meet fellow Koreans. His love for the Korean people and all things Korean, along with his thirst to share Korean culture, is contagious. Greg, thank you for connecting me and countless others to a culture and world that I am now so proud to be a part of. Would you please join me up at the dais? that we would like to give you to thank you for your service to the Korean community. It says, in appreciation of a decade of service as honorary consul for the Re Republic of Korea, Portland, presented to Greg Caldwell, on behalf of the residents of Multnomah County, we recognize and honor your outstanding contributions to the Korean American community, dated January 4th, 2024. <laughs> And I'm so excited. We have some amazing speakers. So uh, I would ask uh, Roy and Francesca Kim, if you would please come up uh, to the speaker's desk there. So I'd like to introduce Roy and Francesca. Roy is the general managing partner of Central Bethany Development. And also joining him is Francesca Kim, who is stunningly beautiful, <laughs> uh, who serves as the director of design and culture. I first met Roy and Francesca when I was a Gresham Redevelopment Commissioner when we were envisioning how to redevelop the old Fred Meyer site in what is now called Downtown Rockwood in Gresham. Their vision of revitalization without displacement has resulted in a community-empowered project that includes the Rockwood Market Hall, Oregon Tradeswomen, and multifamily housing. Welcome, Roy and Francesca. I'll turn it over to you. Thank you. Thank you. Good morning. Good morning, uh, Chair Peterson, Commissioners, and many guests here. Thank you for allowing me this time. I want to especially thank uh, Commissioner Stegman for invi inviting me here. I told her that uh, there are many others who are more qualified than me to be here and tell their inspirational stories. Uh, and I hope I can be representing everyone here who, are, who have those stories to share. My father, uh, Tom Jong-hun Kim, at age 16, found himself alone and separated from his family when the border between North and South Korea was closed off in 1948. After the Korean War, he was still alone without his family. So in 1954, he came to the United States. Um, my mother, uh, Pearl Chung-bin, uh, came to the United States in 1951 during the war, leaving her family behind, not knowing what's going to happen to her family. 
They met in the ultimate melting pot that is uh, New York City. They settled in Washington, D.C., where my sister, my brother, and I were born. My father went to George Washington University. Uh, at the same time, he was raising us and had a full-time job uh, and received his bachelor's and master's in international relations. Uh, had big ambitions to pursue politics or business, and, and then he determined in nine, at this time, 1963, that Asians will not get a fair share in either of those uh, in the United States. So he went back to Korea and had a successful business career there. So when I was four years old, I went to Korea with my parents and then came back to the United States when I was 13. Fast forward to now, my parents are in their 90s, settled in Orange County, California, where they're enjoying the sunshine that we're not, we don't have today. Uh, both my father and mother uh, have given back uh, to their schools, uh, to their local community. Uh, my father set up an endowment at, at George Washington University at its uh, Institute of Korean Studies. Uh, my mother regularly volunteers at a nonprofit in the area. They, and their values of giving back uh, have trickled down to me. Uh, they laid the groundwork for me uh, to work hard, give back to the community I'm in here in Oregon. And I hope to pass that on and instill that spirit into my children. That would be passing on to my children, additionally, my love for Korean music and Korean dramas. If you haven't seen Korean dramas, I, I highly recommend that. I'm grateful for this opportunity I've been given to be a part of this immigrant community of America, challenges and all, where we're able to share diverse perspectives and backgrounds, and to be able to experience more meaningful moments because of that diversity. Uh, thank you for the opportunity to share my story. So uh, my name is Francesca. Uh, my story is a little different than the Roy. Uh, I was born and raised in South Korea up until I married Roy. I have three children. Uh, now I have uh, two grandchildren, and uh, which I love uh, all of them. Um, because of that, I raised in Korea up until I married. Uh, I'm truly that uh, Korean way to grow up. Uh, after I moved to United States, uh, you can tell that I had to face all the language barrier and culture shock. Uh, especially when I raised my kids, uh, because of I learned the Korean way of how to live and how to respect elders, I had to teach and taught them uh, extra mile to go. So they are asking me, for example, when you receive certain things and you have to uh, use two hands, not one hand, and they are all asking me about mom, why I have to do all extra things and none of people doing that. And so I had to face and uh, deal with those things. Uh, of course, um, still the language barrier is never get away. Uh, culture shock is there. But I also had a great opportunity to learn a great American culture. And almost like I had a paradigm shift. This is a great opportunity to uh, accept and adjust the American culture based on what I learned, we, our great culture, Korean culture. 
And there we are and become truly the Korean-American, the lifestyle um, started in, in America. And so I have three children, which is I have a housewife and I'm also working at our company. I learn how to put it back to the community, multi, uh, multicultural community, uh, multi-generational uh, community. We could uh, build it together and now no longer just one generation or one culture. We could just uh, observe everyone all together, hold our hands together, and we can create a great culture in United States. Thank you for a great opportunity. Thank you so much, Roy and Francesca. It's great to have you here. Uh, next, I'd like to welcome Jenny Kim. So Jenny Kim is the Executive Director of Partners in Diversity. I've known Jenny for years and have long admired her leadership in the National Korean American Coalition, along with her service as the co-chair of the Governor's Racial Justice Council on Housing, Homelessness, and Human Services. And she also serves as a commissioner for Home Forward. Please welcome Jenny Kim. Good afternoon, commissioners. Thank you, um, Commissioner Stickman, for inviting me and for this opportunity to speak with you and to everybody in the audience. Um, so my name is Jenny Kim. I use she, her pronouns. And um, I actually didn't write a speech. I wanted to see what the previous speaker said so that I can kind of see what messages I could share. Since it hasn't been done already, I think I want to share a little bit about the history of how Korean American Day came about. So in 1903, 102 first known group of Korean immigrants arrived in Honolulu, and that's the day that we celebrate today. And it's kind of a sad story. <laughs> I'm getting emotional about this. So the initial 102 Korean um, people who came from um, Korea at that time, they came because they were looking for um, job opportunities. They became sugar plantation workers, like a lot of immigrant stories. They were not necessarily of people with a lot of means. They were looking for a new life. There were a lot of men. Um, they came as single men without families. And many of them worked there. And when Japan um, colonized Korea and they became countryless, a lot of them struggled to find their identity. And some of them actually made their way into the mainland and to Oregon. And actually, we have a family based in uh, Gresham, who is a five-generation Korean-American family from that uh, first group. Um, and I think that story, even though it's sad, the fact that we've come such a long way since then, right? Um, with you know, Roy's story, it's my first time hearing about his family, about how his father was abandoned. And I'm sorry, Korean-American immigration history is very sad with a lot of Korean adoptees, including Commissioner Stegman, many folks in the space. We still have a lot of battles that we have as immigrant community. We are fighting for our citizenship. We're fighting for our spaces at the table in leadership spaces. We're still struggling with discrimination based on the way we look and our names. And as a mother of two girls who look like me, I do worry for their future with how the Supreme Court 
and our justice and political system is not necessarily allowing them to have brighter future. And I think it's very important for all of us to know that we have to step up and to speak up for those of us who have a voice like this, an opportunity to speak in a group, to say that we are Americans, we're here, and we made this country. And um, I think that it's an amazing story of how being Korean is now cool. And um, I still don't know if I necessarily fully understand that. <laughs> um, in many of the spaces, I do feel still tokenized as the one um, minority Korean-American, Asian-American woman on many boards and commissions. I know that in some ways that I'm being used as some of our friends call chekwiri, right? It's like check, yep, we have a person of color, we have woman. And I take those opportunities because I know what that means. I think it's important for us to step up like you all have, and the seat that you're sitting in is not an easy seat. You do get a lot of, not necessarily the most glorious accolades, you get all the blames that sometimes maybe you don't necessarily deserve. Um, having said that, I think that um, it's great to see um, people who look like me, Commissioner Stegman, in your role, in your seat. And it gives a lot of hope for our community and that we have this opportunity to celebrate Korean American community and the contributions and the uh, sacrifices and the accomplishments that we've all made as a group. And I'm just really honored to be here. And I hope when you're making your policy and budget decisions that you do think about the racial justice aspect of it. Um, a lot of Asian American communities get lumped as one number, and we are very different. And there is a lot of this concept of model minority myth that we ourselves buy into, about how all Korean Americans are successful and well accomplished. And if you look at any of the census data, that is not true. Home Korean Americans have actually relatively low home ownership numbers. There are many Korean Americans who struggle to put food on the table, who struggle to navigate the the government programs and policy that are supposed to protect them and serve them. And so that's why we also have Korean American community organizations that are here to support them. But um, I just want you to know that um, we are always very grateful for any opportunity for our community members to participate in these meetings and to speak up for um, um, on behalf of our community and to advocate for them. So I apologize, I became a little emotional, but um, it's my first time actually sitting at this side because I tend to sit up there when I'm on the home forward uh, meeting as well too. And it's really, I'm just really grateful to see a diverse group up there as well too. And um, I'm grateful for all you do for um, those who are houseless and who are voiceless. So thank you today. Thank you so much, Jenny. You are one of the coolest people I know. <laughs> uh, and last but not least, I'd like to welcome uh, Peter Cho and his lovely wife. If you would come forward and have a seat. Uh, so if you don't know who Peter Cho and son are, well, you should. Um, I first met Peter at a Korean networking event that he hosted at his beautiful restaurant, Jeju, which is located not too far from here. 
And in November, they hosted our network working group at their Han Oak restaurant, where I met his business partner and wife, Sun Young Park, who offered to cater our event today. <laughs> So I am so excited to have uh, both of them here, and I think they have their, their children with them, and so it's really a family affair, and so I'll turn it over to, to Peter. Good morning. Good morning, thank, thank you, you so, so much. much. Thanks for having us. Yeah, our kids are with us. They're in the back on our devices playing Pokemon. <laughs> they are safe as long as there's batteries. As long as there's, yeah, Wi-Fi connection. Um, so yeah, this. Uh, I guess that leads right to kind of how Hano came about, so I just wanted to talk a little bit about um, sort of our story. Um, I grew up in Springfield, Oregon. Um, our family immigrated when I was seven. Um, and I kind of grew up there, you know, going pretty, pretty similar to most immigrant stories. Um, went to U of O, and I quickly was looking for more culture and certainly uh, bigger, better life experience than in Springfield. And so I uh, moved to New York, and I worked there for about 10 years at a, at a pretty high-profile restaurant group. And if anybody knows about working professionally in, a new, in New York, it's, it's pretty much, yeah, it's dog years. So it's about, you know, I felt like I got 20 years of experience in my 10 years there. And so I was quickly burnt out. Um, but unfortunately, my mom was diagnosed with cancer breast cancer in 2013. And I think the decision was pretty quick and easy for us to just pack up our things and, and move back home. And at that time, my parents had moved from Springfield and had uh, been in Multnomah Village operating a little dry cleaners. Um, and so we quickly moved to Portland. And uh, being as, as burnt out as I was, I took a year off and, and really just took care of my mom and spent time with the family. Um, and But obviously got the itch to start working again. But I think what, what, you know, what was best for us was really Sun's um, goal to not get back into that lifestyle, which was to just work ourselves into the ground. And so she found this space. and. Thanks to Craigslist, uh, she found this unique space, which sort of housed uh, open courtyard, big garage space, and we were able to carve out a little 600 square foot apartment inside of that. Um, so when we had everybody over for the networking event, we did show some folks, uh, gave them a, a, a tour. We've also given some tours to to, to David Chang and Netflix, and, <laughs> and somebody feed Phil. And some other folks too, but um, but yeah, that has always been the story of Hanok is that you know we, we're this quirky family, kids running around um, and living in their restaurant. But I think the bigger part of that story was really our desperation to just do what we wanted, uh, represent Korean food and the culture in the way we wanted, and really focus on being around for our kids when they were very little. And so yeah, that's that's really, really in the inside, uh, the story of Han Oak. Um, 
I turn it over to you. <laughs> you know, that's exactly what it felt like as we were going through year after year and, and making choices. We felt like we were sort of grasping at straws in the dark, not really knowing. But now that I can look at our, our past almost, what, 10 years nine now, years. nine years in February, in February is, is to, to be able to reflect and put into words what sort of as, as you know, Korean Americans, the struggle that we had to go through all of that and try to find ourselves in our identity and carve out a space for ourselves. You know, um, I think, I think that the, it was, um, it, it's, it's we, we, we understand it experientially, but when we put it into words now that we're able to do it, I can see how that struggle was, was a lot harder, a lot harder as Korean Americans, as Peter being the, as, you know, growing up in Springfield, Oregon, I think our, um, I think now that we do also have this restaurant, we've established ourselves and we, we're really proud. We hope our parents are proud, you know, and I think that's very, very Korean of us, you know. Um, <laughs> but it, a lot of it is that, and I, I see now that what we've built is something that is, um, we hope is more than ourselves. It is, um, as most of our generation, I think, are starting to understand as we grow older and have families and, and we become a multi-generational family is that we, we are a bridge to our old, you know, um, our, our culture, our traditions, and, and how do we bring that forth? How do we, how do we build cultural competency in, on both sides, on, on our parents' side and, and our children's side and, and ourselves as well? Um, and I think that, I, I, I think that's what I love most about having built these restaurants. It wasn't necessarily to, to to put some sort of cultural imprint on, on the, uh, you know, in Port on Portland and Oregon, but but I, I see that that is something that we have done, and I can really embrace that, and um, and use that as an opportunity and a tool and as a platform to to build and share and, and build community and bring, you know, Koreans. Uh, I, I've always thought there's no Koreatown here. I grew up. I was born and raised in Los Angeles. There's no Koreatown here. We need a Koreatown. And when I saw all these all our Koreans, 75 Koreans, 75 strong in one space. Um, I thought it's a state of mind. Koreatown is a state of mind. It's not. It's not a place, you know. And it's here. So um, I think just creating that opportunity for for people to gather and and um, not just Koreans. I think as Koreans, our, our, our responsibility, you know, we do check a lot of boxes. We check a lot of boxes, and so the, the, there is that model, model minority myth that is used. It's a strong card, but it's a strong card until it isn't, you know. And so building that sense of self and identity is so vital and important in ourselves so that we can instill that in our children. Um, and I think that that right now is sort of our and my most important goal as a mother, as a business owner, as a child of, of, of Korean immigrants who you know, came from trauma. And, and now we're trying to build a new future for our children. Um, yeah, I think that that is what is at the forefront of my mind right now. And thank you so much for having us here. <laughs> yeah, we're, we're really. Uh, proud to represent um, all of you as Korean Americans, um, and as far as we've come, I'm still cooking food in the back of a boardroom <laughs> in our office. So we have to get back so and stir the we pot are, a little. We're <laughs> preparing a traditional dakmanduk, uh, which is something that you uh, eat on New Year's. We're a couple days late, you but we're tell, happy. You should describe the menu we're now so that everybody know knows going in. No, okay, <laughs> we'll let you know when we get in there. Thank you so much. Thank, Thank you. you so much for having us.
It is such an honor to have Peter and Son here with us, and I think that is a great idea. We need to think about a Korea town. I think we have, I think, as Son said, it's, it's not a place, uh, it's a people, and so I think we have the, the beginnings of that. Uh, so thank you so much. Uh, I want to read the proclamation, but before I do, I wanted to invite everyone to please stay and enjoy some amazing food uh, catered by Han Oak after the board meeting. And I also want to thank our generous sponsors who made today's reception possible. So thank you so much to Roy and Francesca Kim with Central Bethany Development, Julianne and Jen Park the, uh, with the Reserve Vineyards and Golf Club, the Korean American Coalition and board members Jenny Lee Berry and Hannah King who are also joining us, and the Republic of Korea's Consulate General Unji Sa for their generous contribution that made today's reception possible. And also uh, at the conclusion of the board, uh, comments or actually what we'll have after we vote uh, we want you all to come up and let's do a group photo we have Matoya here who's going to take our picture uh, also I wanted to mention uh, I know that we have some Koreans that actually work for Multnomah County did I see Paul Park Paul Park <laughs> And I'm not sure if I know I invited some others but I don't know if we have any other Multnomah County employees that identify as Korean, but uh, you are seen and recognized and appreciated. All right, well, I'm going to read the proclamation, uh, and then I think there'll be time for board comment. Uh, before the Board of County Commissioners for Multnomah County proclaiming January 13th, 2024 as Korean American Day in Multnomah County. The Multnomah County Board of Commissioners finds January 13th is a nationally recognized day to celebrate the contributions of Korean Americans to our society. In 1882, the United States and Korea signed a treaty establishing a peaceful relationship, friendship, and commerce, which led to 102 Korean immigrants to set sail for Honolulu, Hawaii in December of 1902 on the SS Gaelic. These families initiated the first wave of Korean immigration, resulting in over 7,500 immigrants over the next two years. Korean American Day commemorates the arrival of these Korean immigrants in the United States in 1903. For the past century, Korean immigrants have helped build America's prosperity and strengthened our communities. Korean Americans' contributions can be seen in all facets of life, including politics, industry, entrepreneurship, volunteerism, arts, education, and defense of our freedoms. Through their service in World War I, World War II, the Korean conflict, the Vietnam War, and other wars, Korean Americans have served our nation with honor and courage, upholding the values that make our country strong. June 27, 2023 marked the 70th anniversary of the signing of the Mutual Defense Treaty between the United States and the Republic of Korea. Korean Americans have built and strengthened the alliance between the United States and the Republic of Korea. 
fostering peace on the Korean Peninsula, and promoting trade alliances as a crucial trading partner in Oregon. South Korea is Oregon's fourth largest market for export products. Korean Americans are an integral part of our community and have contributed greatly despite harassment, discrimination, and anti-Asian hate, all of which are on the rise today. Multnomah County is committed to learning from and working with our Korean American community to reduce barriers that result in increased social inclusion, economic mobility, language and healthcare access, and meaningful civic engagement. Multnomah County welcomes and supports Korean Americans as vital members of the community. The Multnomah County Board of Commissioners proclaims January 13, 2024 as Korean American Day in Multnomah County to honor and celebrate the many contributions made by Korean Americans throughout our vibrant community. We encourage businesses, organizations, public institutions, and community members to recognize Korean American Day and take time to learn about Korean American history in our county. Adopted this day, of fourth day of January, 2024. So, Thank you so much, Commissioner Stegman. Thank you so much for um, all of our guests who were here today. We're gonna um, now have time for board comments and then we will take a vote. We'll have a um, short wrap up at the end and then we'll be, do the um, photograph and then have time for food and celebration. So just hang tight for a few minutes and we'll start with um, any comments from Commissioner Beeson. Um, I wanna thank Commissioner Stegman for uh, leading us in this joyous celebration today. And uh, thank you all for, for being here, for the contributions you and your families have made to our communities. It means so much. Uh, Dr. John Powell says, uh, sense of belonging is the greatest gift we can give one another in a democracy. And I just believe in the kind of America that says uh, you belong, uh, the culture you are bringing belongs, and you make this country stronger. So thank you all for making our country stronger. Commissioner Ben Edwards. I also want to thank everyone for coming this morning um, to help us celebrate this proclamation. Um, for those who spoke, um, really thank you for sharing your Korean American stories. Um, and I'm, I'm always, t I'm glad I didn't have to go right after you spoke because I'm always touched by your story. So thank you, Commissioner Stegman. Um, I also want to thank everyone here in the broader Korean American community for the contributions um, that have been made and are currently being made to Multnomah County in Oregon. Um, I've got to say, I'm, I can't wait to tell my kids tonight that um, Han Oak was in the house. <laughs> um, it's one of our family favorites um, and for special occasions, it's um, if we can get in. Um, after we found it the first time, it's still kind of tucked away. Um, but it's one of our favorite places to go. Um, so I'm very appreciative of that contribution to our community as well. Um, and I, I just want to close by just recognizing and honoring um, fellow Commissioner uh, Lori Stegman, who really exemplifies the leadership that, um, the ways in which um, through her leadership she has contributed and Korean Americans contribute to Multnomah County and our community. Uh, 
you represent well, and um, I think that we are really enriched in our work by the voice and um, what you bring to the county commission. So I wanna honor you today and on the 13th. Thank you so much uh, for those kind comments. Uh, I did wanna also recognize, I know that we have Senator John Lim in the audience. Senator, would you please wave? We wanna welcome you. Along with his lovely wife, Grace, uh, Senator Lim was the first Korean uh, legislator, I believe, in the state of Oregon, so we are very honored and glad that you are here to join us. And also, I believe Su Susan Cox is here. Susan, wave for everyone. Uh, Susan is the honorary consul for the Eugene area, and I'm so pleased that her and her husband joined us, drove uh, from Eugene this morning, so great to have you all here. And uh, because we had so many things, that I, there were, you know, like this could have been a three hour <laughs> event, but I did receive a video from Consul Gen General Sa that after we conclude uh, the meeting, it's just a short three minute video uh, that we'd like to play for folks uh, that she would like to share a message. So uh, I'll turn it back over to you, Chair. Thank you so much. Well, first of all, yes, thank you so much, Commissioner Segman, for, for bringing us all together in such a beautiful way today. Um, thank you all for being here, everyone who showed up. I think this is such a strong statement of um, community and coming together and creating that, um, that Koreatown state of mind, as I um, had said earlier. I, um, I, I'm always struck by both the, the similarities of, of immigrant stories, right? My, my background is Mexican-American, um, similar um, stories to that, but also the very unique and special stories that people bring um, as part of their own journeys of being here, of being part of our community today. And just, um, it always resonates with me just how incredibly special, important, and valuable to who we are today to, to be inclusive of those stories and, and bringing people together. And so I'm so joyful that we have had this opportunity to really um, to learn about, to share, to embrace and celebrate the, the Korean um, culture, the Korean American culture. So thanks all of you for being here today. Um, I am very um, excited about the food. I have not been to Hanok before, so I am like, this is um, incredibly exciting. Um, I also wanted to recognize Bobby Leaves here, um, yes. who took time out of his very busy schedule. From the mayor's office to be here. I know this is a very important thing. And um, Commissioner Segment, I just the final thing I'd like to say is I just have really um, appreciated and, and been grateful for the opportunity to watch and be with you as you have um, taken your journey through getting to know your uh, Korean uh, culture and the trips you've taken and everything. And that's been really beautiful. So yeah, I feel very you. privileged to have seen that. So thank you. Um, so with that, we are going to go ahead and take a roll call vote. Commissioner Beeson? Yes, yes. <laughs> Commissioner Brum Edwards? Aye. Commissioner Stegman? Aye. Chair Vega Peterson? Aye. The proclamation is adopted. So now is the time on the board agenda when we are done with our um, um, business and we have time for um, co board comment on non-agenda items. I'll go through the commissioners to see if anyone has anything that they would like to share this week. I will start with Commissioner Brum Edwards. I don't want to get between everybody and Han Oak, <laughs> so no. <laughs> uh, Commissioner Stegman. Nothing for me, just a photo uh, before we have the video. Sure. Uh, Commissioner Beeson. 
food. Yes. <laughs> so I do have one thing, and it's, um, it is uh, something a little uh, more sobering today. So before we get to the celebration, I did not want to let this board meeting, though, pass without a recognition um, to speak of a loss in our Multnomah County family that occurred over the recent holidays. Um, Fleetwood uh, Mose was someone who was taken um, from us too soon. Um, uh, Fleetwood was a veteran services officer for um, ADVSD for the past several years who lost his life in an accident with a drunk driver over this past weekend. And I really want to express the deepest condolences on behalf of um, Multnomah County to his family, to his co-workers, his community, and all who loved him. He brought his compassionate spirit and caring energy to his work and was a supportive team member across ADVSD. He was also a pillar of support for the LGBTQIA2S plus community, um, and especially the veterans community. And his loss is felt across many communities in Multnomah County who are deeply impacted by his death. So um, I wish each person who has been touched by his loss my, um, my heartfelt condolences and really encourage you to reach out for the support that you need during this time. So I just wanted to make sure that we acknowledge that. Um, and so thank you for, for the time to do that. Um, that doesn't conclude our business today, so we will have a, a photograph, we'll have a video, we'll have food, and we'll continue the celebration. So with that, we are adjourned.